some of you, when you drove by this week or when you pulled into the parking lot, you saw in our sign that we were advertising the greatest sermon ever this Sunday at 10 o'clock. So here we are. And it's 10.20 now, and now I'm supposed to preach the greatest sermon ever. So I hate to disappoint you, but unfortunately, I cannot come up with the greatest sermon ever. It's already been done, and we'll look at the greatest sermon ever this morning. I hope to do at least a little bit of justice to it. But it got me thinking this week about what makes a great sermon. And, you know, is it, is it some humor or some poetry, some things that sort of stand out in your mind? Is it making cookies like it did last week? Is it all that? I baked those cookies, by the way, and took them to Vacation Bible School Sunday night, and they were pretty good. And so they were gone in a heartbeat, too. Had about 45 or 50 cookies, and by the end of the night, I had zero. So it was, it was good. But, you know, is it things like that? And I, I thought about this, and I want to both challenge myself and, and us with this, that I think each time that I have the opportunity... To, to preach, there are two questions that I ask that I think help point to ensuring that at least from my side, from the human side, that we sort of have the opportunity to experience something great from God. And of course, if God doesn't get involved, then what we do doesn't matter anyway. But as far as I can help it, there are two questions I ask. Number one, what makes a great sermon? Number one is this, does it come from God? Great sermons don't come from men. Great sermons come from God. Great sermons are from His Word. Great sermons are simply preached as a reflection. Here's what God has to say. Often I will hear people pray, and maybe you can hear them and maybe you can't. Before the the sermon, they'll pray, please bless the message. And I look at it as it's a message from God. That doesn't make me any better than you or me any different than anybody else. It's just simply that... If it's not a message from God, then I might as well just not get up here. And so a great sermon, first of all, it comes from God. And it had better be preached from God's Word, not from a bunch of psychological self-help books and all that, though they can be an assistance and help us understand it maybe in today's terms, but that's not the origin. And so a great sermon is simply a message from God. And secondly, I think that the result of that sermon is changed lives. A great sermon, first of all, comes from God, and it changes lives. And it's not because of my fancy words I can come up with, but it's simply, as Paul said, because of a demonstration of God's power. God's Word will change your life. And the more you involve yourself in it, the closer you pay attention to what it has to say, the more opportunity there is for you to be the person that God wants you to be. And so I don't judge the success of a sermon based upon only the immediate response or feedback that I get when you walk out of here or the next day. I judge the success of a sermon on how many lives are different on Monday, maybe then on Thursday, and then Friday and Saturday, and our lives being changed. And so as we think about it, How can we evaluate the greatness of a sermon? Number one, it has nothing to do with me. Number number one, it has everything to do with God. It has to be a message from Him. And secondly, it has to change lives. What we're going to look at today is a message directly from God. For those of you who say, well, if it's not in red letters, I don't believe it. This will be in red letters. All Scripture, Paul says, is inspired. It's all equal. But for those of you that like the red letters, today's your day. 
It's a message straight from Jesus Christ himself. And it will change your life if you let it. Some of you say, I don't want my life changed. Okay. But it'll change your life if you let it. Think about for a second some difficult things that you've had to do throughout your life. Things that you say, well, I don't know if I can do that. That's hard. That is a difficult thing for me to tackle. That's a big mountain to climb. But you had to come through. You, you had to do it. You absolutely had to make it happen. Some of you think back to days when maybe you played sports and you were the person who at that moment, you were in the batter's box or at the free throw line or, or on the football field, wherever you were, you had to come through. Because if you didn't, you're going to lose. Your team was going down if you didn't come through. Or there's been situations in your family or your work life or just whatever it may be that you say, you know what, if, if I don't come through, then, then this whole situation could fall apart. Lots of things are going to be really bad if I don't come through. And so we, we've all had those. And certainly throughout history, we have seen how certain people, they've absolutely had to come through or things were going to get really bad really quick. And we can all have things come to mind. One, one of which that I find particularly fascinating originated on April 11th, 1970 with the launch of Apollo 13. Some of you know the facts of that mission because you were around when it happened and you remember watching it unfold on television and seeing what went on. Some of you saw the movie that came out several years ago and, and now you sort of have an idea of what took place. On April 11, 1970, a mission to the moon was launched. Two days later, if you know the story, there was a major malfunction aboard the ship that caused an explosion that crippled the ship. And as a result, they were not able to go to the moon. But that was just the beginning of their problems. They could have dealt with not going to the moon, but they began to experience some other things. They had to go from one side of the ship to another that was only supposed to support two men for a short period of time. They had three and needed to be there a long period of time. And so as a result, their oxygen levels and carbon dioxide levels weren't exactly healthy, and so they were facing some major, major problems and needed somebody to come through. I want to show you a brief clip to kind of set up the rest of this morning. Check this out. Anything over 15, and you get impaired judgment, blackouts, the beginnings of brain asphyxia. What about the scrubbers on the command module? They take square cartridges. The ones on the limb are round. <laughs> Tell me this isn't a government operation. This just isn't the contingency we've remotely looked at. Those CO2 levels are going to be getting toxic. Well, I suggest you gentlemen invent a way to put a square peg in a round hole. Rapidly. Okay, people, listen up. Their bosses had handed them something that was vitally important, and they had to come through. And certainly today we'll learn that we have been given a very important and incredible mission by Jesus Christ, and failure is not an option. We have to come through. 
if they had failed in building that filter to make sure that the air was breathable, three lives and $4.4 billion would have been lost. If we fail in the mission that God has given us that we'll see today, then billions of lives are at stake for all eternity. And it depends on us. Failure is not an option. We have to come through. And so I want us to consider from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, this incredible mission. So if you've got your Bible and want to turn there, then I'd like for you to look there with me. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's no problem. In just a moment, when we begin to read these, the verses will be on the screen. But this chapter is the beginning, Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of what's known as the Sermon on the Mount, which is the greatest sermon ever. And Jesus, as we learned last week, is talking about the kingdom of God. If you look back in chapter 4, we'll, we'll look at this verse again like we did last week. Chapter 4, verse 17, it says this, From then on, this is after Jesus was baptized and then tempted, and he's going out to begin his ministry. From then on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is near. Then look at chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus was going all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then, as we looked at last week, he gathers his disciples around him on the side of a mountain, and he sits down. Now, we, we typically would think that's casual, that's relaxed. Okay, they're just having a conversation. But in his day, sitting down for the teacher was the position of authority. That's where they taught from. And so we have him setting up, here's what the kingdom is going to be about. He's preaching about the kingdom. So when he begins to speak, in a sense, it is the king sitting down on his throne handing out the terms of his kingdom. And we looked last week at how Jesus said, here are the terms. I am the king, here's how you will approach me. And we looked at eight different ways that sort of build on one another. Here's what God wants for us. And this week, we'll look at the mission that the king has given to his people. What does he want them not only to be, but to do? Here's who you are and what you should do. And so we'll look at this this morning and discover a little bit more about the kingdom of God and what he wants us to do. The mission that he's sending them on is, is incredibly important, and we'll discover that today. Every great mission, as you well know, is launched either because of some incredible goal. When President Kennedy said, let's get to the moon by the end of the 60s, an incredible goal, the mission is launched. When these guys have to build the filter, it's because of a major problem. Every great mission starts because of an incredible goal or because of a great problem. And we have a great problem that we'll learn about today, and we'll learn what God's solution is to that. Now, last week I gave you some homework, and for those of you that are not in school anymore, you say, I thought I was done with homework, what are you talking about? For those of you who are on summer break, you're really done with school, and you don't want any homework at all. But the homework was, read every day, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, and see if you can memorize it. Now, like we did last week, we'll put it on the screen, so you have a cheat sheet if you need it. For those of you that read it every day, I, I pray that the Word of God has sunk into your heart and began to affect the way you live. For some, this will be an introduction to this particular scripture, and so I, I will do my best to recite it with you. I know that probably the overwhelming majority could recite this in your sleep. You're so familiar with the scripture. But for those of us who maybe struggle with it, let's see what we can do. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. You'll see it on the screen. 
You can try to recite it or just read it along. You ready? You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Won't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we look at your word today, we need it to come alive. We need to see you, and we need to be changed. So God, I pray that your word would go deep into our hearts and minds. Challenge us, encourage us, correct us, and set us on a path of following you. And we commit this next time, these next few minutes, to really listening to what you have to say and asking you to speak directly to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, these verses are not meant just to be memorized, of course, but to be understood and to be lived out. And just like in Apollo 13, that mission, they had a problem. Those famous words, Houston, we have a problem. We have a problem today. And in fact, it's a major problem. And I want you to think about it in these terms. The major problem we face is this. The earth is decaying and it's dark. The earth is decaying and it's dark. If you like to follow along on your bulletin and kind of keep some notes, you'll see that on the back. And as we get to it, these words will pop up on the screen. But the major problem we face is that the earth is decaying and dark. Since sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, it's been a consistent spiral downward. The world has not gotten any better since Genesis chapter 3. In fact, in Genesis chapter 4, quickly after sin entered the world, we have the first recorded murder in the Bible. Got bad real quick. Two chapters later, several hundred years, but two chapters later, God decides that because evil is the only thing people think about, He's going to destroy the earth with a flood. Genesis chapter 6 through chapter 9 describe what God did. Genesis chapter 9, He blesses Noah, telling him, Go and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Two chapters later, people are so evil again, only out for themselves, that God says, fine, you want to be in charge? I'll confuse all your languages and scatter you all across the earth. Now see who's in charge. And so we see that from very early on, as we looked at in the series that we got done with not long ago, sin spiraled out of control. And then we get to the New Testament and the world that Jesus lived in and the world that was there shortly after he left the earth. And we see in Romans chapter 1, and these verses will be on the screen behind me because I really want them to be seen and to be understood. This is the world that Jesus was in and the world that Paul lived in as he was writing to the Romans not long after Jesus left the earth. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 21. For though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds were, were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the cravings of their hearts to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served something created instead of the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. 
This is why God delivered them over to degrading passions, for even their females exchanged natural sexual intercourse for what is unnatural. The males in the same way also left natural sexual intercourse with females and were inflamed with lust for one another. Males committed shameless acts with males and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty for their perversion. Verse 28. And they did not think it worthwhile to have God in their knowledge. And because they didn't, God delivered them over to a worthless mind to do what is morally wrong. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They're full of envy, murder, disputes, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know full well God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Now, Paul was writing about the Roman world, but I would imagine if he lived in 2009 America, he'd write the same thing. The world has been getting progressively worse. And you may say, well, okay, but, you know, we're, we're an advanced society. I mean, they, they didn't have computers and technology like we have. They certainly weren't as advanced as us, not nearly as wise. We have all of that history to look back on. Let me read you some headlines just this week, only from the United States. You tell me if the world's getting better or worse. Two Marines indicted in gruesome killing of Army nurse. Nationwide manhunt underway for sex offender girlfriend and her three-year-old daughter. Six Philadelphia businesses robbed by machine gun-toting bandits. Cornell student returning to face murder charges. Mom accused of burning her daughter, who's six, in a voodoo ritual. Rhode Island tries to outlaw indoor prostitution again. Five Arkansas prison workers fired after two convicts escaped. Child sex charge against mom of four leaves town reeling. And an ex-Marine said this, two friends confessed to killing a boss and a wife. Now you say, well... Okay, well, that's just sort of the dregs of society. I mean, those, those are the people who just don't, you know, they, they have no morals whatsoever. They're not, they're not, they don't have anything. You know, certainly if, if people can make it somewhere in life, maybe they wouldn't do those things. Here's from the entertainment headlines. People who have lots of money. The dad of American Idol's David Archuleta busted in a prostitution ring. Billy Joel and his wife separate after five years of marriage. Ex-major leaguer sentenced to 45 years for rape. Ex-mountain bike champ arrested an alleged pot bust. NFL star Stallworth pleads guilty to DUI manslaughter. And you say, well, okay, well, maybe if people have something good happen in their lives, they, they, they won't act the way they shouldn't. At least 25 Lakers fans arrested after riot. They won the championship, so they riot. I think celebrate. But anyway, uh, R&B artist Usher and his wife filed for divorce after two years of marriage. And then one headline that I didn't read the article on, famous musician bankruptcies. Certainly our world is spiraling downward. It is decaying, and it is a dark place. And it has been that way since Genesis chapter 3, and we see it getting progressively worse. Why do we read all that? Why do we think that? Why do we give our time to reading those passages of Scripture and those headlines? Simply to show that Jesus would not have mentioned anything about salt and anything about light if he perceived the world as getting better if he perceived the world as somehow on a track to become a little bit different he perceived the world as it is that is decaying it needs salt that is dark it needs light and this truth that he presents to his disciples and all those who are listening is a truth for us today 
And so for every major problem, there is a solution. I'm thankful God provides a solution that gives us one for this decaying and dark world. And here it is. Here's God's solution. You are the preservative and the illumination. This is God's solution. You are the preservative and the illumination. What does he say? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And he's talking to his disciples, those who would follow him. And consequently, by extension, he's talking to us. You are the preservative and the illumination. We are to be the agents of change for God. The people described last week, as we looked at verses 1 through 12, those people... Those who follow God, they are the ones who are salt and light. And Jesus was speaking to a group of Jewish peasants. I thought about this, and I thought, well, certainly if he wanted to change the world, he'd go to the people in high up in the government or in the church that had some power, the movers and shakers. He's talking to people who were generally the outcasts of their society, a bunch of Jewish peasants who had nothing, telling them, you're going to turn the world on its ear. You're going to be the ones to get it done. And certainly some of us today feel like, how on earth can I do anything at all? I don't serve in any capacity where I have much influence. I certainly don't have you know, this or that. My money is limited and so on and so forth. All the excuses. And Jesus just says, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. He knows what we're up against. And you say, well, wouldn't people who, as we looked at last week, are simply just kind of empty-handed before God, or or they're meek and gentle, and all they're pursuing is just righteousness? I mean, wouldn't those people just get run over by the world? Jesus, over and over, tells his disciples, both in the book of John, and then later John writes in 1 John, how no matter what you face, I am on your side. And I have overcome the world, Jesus tells them. You are up against it. But I have overcome it. Jesus knows what we're up against, but he calls us to serve and to reach the world anyway. And he says it in terms that they would understand, in terms that we can understand. He says, you are salt. Now, salt today is not used exactly the way it was back then, and so we have to sort of transfer our minds to thinking in a first century kind of world. When salt was used primarily as a preservative, you know, food left on its own is going to rot. You ever left anything out overnight? You just think, oh, can't use it anymore. But if you put it in some way that will preserve it, in the freezer or in the refrigerator or something like that, it will preserve it. Well, salt acted the same way. And food left to its own is going to rot. And the world, Jesus describes, left on its own is going to continue to be on this downward spiral. The world has a constant tendency to deteriorate. And so Jesus says it needs salt. Even here in Murray, Kentucky, Callaway County, if our community is left on its own, and is true to itself, it's going to keep getting worse. Some of you say, oh, I've been here long enough to see it. I know exactly what you're talking about. I remember 30 years ago this didn't happen. And then I could see how the pattern progresses. And you see that left on its own, any society, any community is going to continue to get worse. So salt is needed to be applied to that. Certainly government and, and family and all can, can, can sort of put some restraints on it. Good families help to promote righteousness and all of that kind of stuff. The government creates laws to keep people in line. But God intends, when Jesus says, you are the salt, you are the light, He intends for His people to be the most powerful agents of preserving righteousness, of preventing more decay. So we kind of operate as a moral disinfectant for our community. We do our best to prevent the spread of evil. We're outspoken when we need to be. Certainly we don't back down from that. If there's something that's evil in the world, we we need to lead the charge and say that's wrong. 
We don't need to be a part of that. We don't want our society going down that road, doing the best we can to prevent evil things from happening. Speaking up for people who can't speak for themselves. We take up for those who are, who are unborn. We take up for those who are poor, who are sick, the elderly, those without equal rights. The only way we can do that, though, Jesus says, is to be distinct. Salt was different than decay. There was something distinct. It's interesting that he says in verse 13, if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? Now, certainly salt can't be anything but salt. We know that. But at the same time, Jesus in that world, he knew that sometimes salt would get mixed with some impurities. And if salt's mixed with enough stuff that sort of, in a sense, makes it tasteless or useless, then obviously it's good for nothing. And, and back during that time, salt would often get mixed with sand because it was drawn a lot from the same sources around the, the, the different uh, you know, oceans and the Dead Sea and so on. It kind of get mixed with sand. And so it became difficult to tell what's salt and what's sand. And I did some research on this, and I'm not going to do an experiment for you today because I didn't know exactly how it would turn out, but I thought if you wanted to separate the sand from the salt, get the impurities out of it, you've got to do a couple of things. First, you'd have to take and, and, and put the, the salt and the sand mixture into some water because then you, you'd kind of see a little bit of separation. Then you would pour that water through some sort of filter, maybe a coffee filter or something like that that would catch the sand. And then the water and the salt would go on through. But then you're still not done because you've still got to separate the water from the salt, so then you have to boil the water, and you've left, you're left with the salt. So Jesus is basically saying, look, you have to retain your saltiness your taste, your purity, if you are going to be able to apply that and prevent decay in the world. And so in our lives, sometimes we get mixed with some impurities. Sometimes we aren't the people described in the first 12 verses of this chapter. Sometimes we don't pursue righteousness above anything else. Sometimes we aren't the peacemakers or pure in heart or poor in spirit. And so we have to either, one, prevent the impurities to begin with, by lining our lives up with that. Or, understand that in order to have the impurities sifted out, it's going to take some time. It may take a little bit of heat. It may have to endure some things we don't quite like to have ourselves be separated and pure. And so Jesus says, look, you've got to retain your saltiness. Because if it loses its taste, what good is it? What good, in a sense, are Christians who don't live according to the way the Scripture says we ought to live? We're useless we have no effect on society. And Jesus is calling us to be that salt that prevents decay. But it's not only salt just to prevent decay, it's also light to illuminate the world because if it were just salt, we might think, well, Jesus just kind of wants us to be good citizens or just to be social activists, just to kind of do things in our community to kind of make it better. But he goes beyond that. He doesn't stop there. Certainly that's involved, preventing evil and doing the best we can. But he says you are to be light. And it's interesting that Jesus later would call himself the light of the world, so by extension, that's what we are. Look at, look at in verse 14. He says, You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. Verse 15, No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. It gives light for all who are in the house. Some interesting things Jesus describes about the light that we are to be. It's to be visible, which means that we can't hide from who we are. If we've been changed by Jesus Christ... We, we are not to hide from that. 
We are to openly live those things in verses 3 through 12 that Jesus described and we saw last week. We don't pretend to be anything else but the new creations God has made us to be. And we don't conceal the truth that we know. And we don't withdraw completely from the world, but we light it up. So the light is to be visible. And then you look in verse 16. And he says, in the same way, just like you're lighting up that house, let your light shine before men so they may see your good works. So the light's visible and it's also very practical. It's those simple, everyday things that we do. The things we say, the conversations we have, going the extra mile, doing things for people in the name of Jesus, it adds up over time. And it's practical, every day. And then he says it's for one purpose, that they may see your good works and do what? Give glory to your Father in heaven. The reason that we operate as salt and light is not so we can grow our church. It's not so we can be thought of as great people. But it's for one purpose and one purpose alone. And that is so that people who are living in a decaying and dark world can find Jesus. And that's it. Because we can grow our church through fancy advertising and people may never find Jesus. We can grow our church and be known as great people through social activism, which in and of itself is nothing wrong with that. But if it's not done for the one purpose, we do these things, we live this way so that people will see those things and be changed forever. That's what we're going for. So Jesus says there's a fundamental difference between Christians and the world. Salt and light are different than decay and darkness. And then we have a responsibility because we are the salt. We are the light. We have a responsibility to serve the world by hindering the spread of evil and by promoting the spread of godliness. So what do we do now? I want you to think about a principle that the Lord has taught me for the last several years. And, I, and I, it comes directly from this passage of Scripture. What must we do in order to be salt and light, in order to live this out, I believe this principle has to be in play in our lives, and here it is. Always assume that you are the only godly influence for every situation and person you encounter. Always assume that you are the only godly influence for every situation and person you encounter. When you leave here today, You'll encounter situations and people. When you get up tomorrow, potentially going to work or to the store or being around family, whatever it is that you do, you'll be around people and situations. And what if you simply assumed and operated under the principle that I am the only godly influence these people will ever encounter, this situation will ever encounter? Before you start to close everything up, I want to leave you with, with this. If you assume that you are the only godly influence for every situation and person you encounter, I think it will change a lot of things. I've seen in my own life what that's done. The Lord knows I'm not perfect at it by any means, and I'm happy to be on the journey with God, and He's gracious to me. But I believe it changes your vision. I think it, I think it helps you see people a little differently. You see them as decaying and dark not just some jerk that doesn't like you. Not just some random person you happen to bump into. It changes your vision. You see people the way God sees them. It changes your prayers, I think. 
Our prayer now is not so much a laundry list to God of things I want and I need and me, 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 me. It's God. You know what? I'm going to encounter some people today. There are going to be some situations today, God, that need your influence. And God, with everything that's in me, I commit to you. I'm going to be that influence. Give me wisdom in the moment because I'm going to need it, but help me, help me, help me. It changes your actions. You realize that when you assume that you're the only godly person at your job, in your family, with the people you're around, in line at the store, you can't be a jerk anymore. This was tough for me. Just thought, you know what? This line needs to speed up a little bit. I faced this yesterday. I have to tell you, I went to Walmart for a tire rotation. An hour and a half later, after pushing three kids around in a cart for an hour and a half in Walmart, I left with a tire rotation. It took an hour and a half. And I, it was everything I could do to know what I was preaching about today and say, you know what, God, if I'm not going to live this out, I might as well not even get up there tomorrow and, and not sort of express my disdain for their lack of prompt service. Hour and a half. But I walked out of there and I thought, you know what, God, I, I may be the only godly influence they've got. I have no idea who works there. Don't know who they're around. Don't know what family or what church or anything. It'll change your actions. It'll change your words. Because when you figure you're my, you might be the only godly influence, you, you measure those words just a little bit. And instead of just saying exactly what you think and feel at all times, eh, maybe I shouldn't say that right now. And ultimately, of course, it'll change your life because you begin to fulfill the purpose that Jesus laid out of being salt and being light. The example of Walmart reminds me of other things in my life that I've dealt with recently <clears throat> where I've had to live this principle out or at least be challenged by it and do the best I can. We just wrapped up our t-ball season and as I've told you before each week twice a week as a matter of fact I was given the incredible responsibility for 14 four and five year olds and the opportunity to create order out of chaos every week. Sometimes I did good and sometimes I didn't but you know I had a couple of kids on that team who really listen to everything I had to say. Boy, they soaked it up, and they do exactly what you want them to. And I wish I had 14 of those, you know. And then I had some that were just kind of there, and they really didn't care either way, but I had a couple that just wouldn't do what I asked them to do. Well, one in particular was just defiant sometimes, just misbehaving, and I just thought, oh. And there were times when I walked away, and I just thought, Lord, this season can't end quick enough. Please. Why did I sign up to coach T-ball? And then God will remind me, you know what? That young man, that young lady, what if they got nobody? What if they have no godly influence? What if they go home and their parents are abusive? What if they go home and nobody cares about them? What if the only time when somebody gives them a hug or a high five is on that field for one hour a week? What if the only time somebody looks them in the eyes and expects something out of them, helps them know how to act right, is when you're with them. What if? And so I repented and I said, all right, God, I'm sorry. You know, let the season last a little longer, I guess. I don't know. But I tell you, it changed me. Last week at Vacation Bible School, as I walked around and paid attention to what was going on and tried to interact with the kids and adults as best I could, I knew there were other godly influences, but I was assuming, you know what, I'm not going to take it for granted. I'm not going to take for granted that this kid's had somebody be encouraging to them, that this adult worker got a cookie. I'm not going to take it for granted. Do my best. 
Today, when you walk out of here, you'll maybe go to a restaurant, and there'll be a waiter or a waitress, a hostess, a cashier, somebody that by tendency and just by nature will assume, well, they're there just to serve me, and if the service isn't good, watch out. But I'm telling you, when we assume that we are the only godly influence for that waiter, that waitress, that hostess, that cashier, then the way we say things, please and thank you, gets a little different. The way we're gracious toward them when the food takes just a little bit longer to cook or isn't cooked exactly to perfection, maybe we operate then just a little bit differently. And I tell you what, there have been times just like at Walmart yesterday (laughs) when I thought, well, this service is awful. But I tell you, I came back to the Scripture. And I don't always do that. Boy, I wish I were perfect, but I'm not. Maybe one day I'll understand all that God wants me to do. I'm still on that journey. But I tell you, when I apply this principle, it changes me. And I just think, what if the Christians in our community assumed we were the only godly influence? You know, the people that work on Sunday afternoon in the restaurants, they'd probably walk away with a different perspective of church people. Because we'd probably act a little differently. We'd probably tip a little better, too. And we, we might take our godly influence to them. The people you work with, the folks you'll see tomorrow, the situations you encounter are desperate for salt and light. And so what will you do when you're sitting in traffic somebody cuts you off? What will the look be on your face or other gestures and so on? How loud will your, will your horn be if you assume that, you know what, I might not be able to say anything to this person, but I'm the only godly influence they might have today. And I'm not saying we should go through life looking for ways just to get trampled on and all that. Please don't read into it. But I believe the Scripture shows us if we operate with this principle, I am salt and I am light, it'll change the way we act toward people. It'll change what we do. And Jesus said very clearly, it's dependent upon our character. We can't be light and salt if we've lost our saltiness and light. And so we have to remain full of Him and pursuing the character that He's laid out for us in the first few verses. Let me close with this story. One day when I was a freshman in high school, I saw a kid from my class walking home from school. His name was Kyle. It looked like he was carrying all of his books. I thought to myself, why would anyone bring home all his books on a Friday? I had quite a weekend plan with lots of stuff to do, so I shrugged my shoulders and went on. As I was walking, I saw a bunch of kids running toward him. They ran at him, knocking all of his books out of his arms and tripping him, so he landed in the dirt. His glasses went flying, and I saw them land in the grass about 10 feet away from him. He looked up, and I saw this terrible sadness in his eyes. My heart went out to him, so I jogged over to him, and as he crawled around looking for his glasses, I saw a tear in his eye. As I handed him his glasses, I said, Look, don't worry about those guys. Are you all right? He looked at me and said, Yeah, thanks. There was a big smile on his face. It was one of those smiles that showed real gratitude. I helped him pick up his books and asked him where he lived. As it turned out, he lived near me, so I asked him why I'd never seen him before. He said he'd gone to a private school before now. We talked all the way home, and I carried his books. He turned out to be pretty cool. I asked him if he wanted to play football with me and my friends on Saturday, and he said yes. We hung out all weekend, and the more I got to know Kyle, the more I liked him, and my friends thought the same of him. Monday morning came, and there was Kyle with a huge stack of books again. I stopped him and said, Man, you're really going to get in shape carrying that big pile of books every day. He just laughed and handed me half the books. Over the next four years, Kyle and I became best friends. When we were seniors, we began to think about college. Kyle decided on Georgetown, and I was going to Connecticut. 
I knew that we would always be friends, that the miles would never be a problem. He was going to be a doctor, and I was going for business on a football scholarship. Kyle was the valedictorian of our class. I teased him all the time about it. He had to prepare a speech for graduation. I was so glad it wasn't me having to get up there and speak. On graduation day, I saw Kyle, and he looked great. He was one of those guys that really found himself during high school. He filled out and actually looked good in glasses. He had more dates than me, and all the girls loved him. Sometimes I was really jealous. Today was one of those days. I could see that he was nervous about his speech, so I smacked him on the back and said, Hey, big guy, you'll be great. He looked at me with one of those looks, the really grateful one, and smiled. Thanks, he said. As he started his speech, he cleared his throat and began. Graduation is a time to thank those who helped you make it through the tough years. Your parents, your teachers, your siblings, maybe a coach, but mostly your friends. I'm here to tell you that being a friend to someone is the best gift you can give them. I'm going to tell you a story. I just looked at my friend with disbelief as he told the story of the first day we met. He planned to kill himself over the weekend. He told of how he had cleaned out his locker so his mom wouldn't have to do it later and was carrying his stuff home. He looked hard at me and gave me a little smile. Thankfully, I was saved. My friend saved me from doing the unspeakable, he said. I heard the gasp go through the crowd as this handsome, popular boy told us all about his weakest moment. I saw his mom and dad looking at me and smiling, that same grateful smile. Not until that moment did I realize the impact of my first encounter with Kyle. We have to come through for people just like Kyle. Failure is not an option. We have to come through. The people you work with, live with, or around every day, you'll, the people you'll encounter this afternoon, the people sitting here in church that you don't know, we have to come through. Because you just never know. We have to be the preservative to prevent further decay in the world and to promote godliness. Kyle could be the very next person you encounter. And Jesus was giving this message to people who were already following him. And I realize today that for many of us, we're on that track. But certainly for some of us, we've never made that commitment to Jesus Christ. He said he is the light of the world. He is the one who is the solution to the major problem that we have called sin. The Bible says that because of our sin, all we deserve is punishment. But Jesus loved us enough to take the punishment for us, to light up our lives and our world with His forgiveness, His grace, to give us another chance, to provide for us the opportunity to spend forever with Him. And He says, here's what you do. Just admit that, you know what? I am a sinner. I've messed up. And I believe, though, that Jesus, the Son of God, died and was raised again to pay for those sins. And I'm going to commit my life to Him. Do my best to, to do what He says, to follow His Word. The Bible says when you call upon Jesus like that, you'll be saved. Don't leave here today without having given your entire life to Jesus. Without being obedient to Him, maybe through a step of baptism or something else like that, or without having committed to live all out for Him. And don't leave here today without the resolve to assume that walking away from here, we always assume we're the only godly influence for every situation and person that we encounter. Let's pray.